This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers. As was said, my name is Yvonne Weldon. I am a sovereign Radri woman. I come from Cowra, here in New South Wales, from the waters of the Clare, which is also known as the Lachlan, and of the Murrumbidgee Rivers. I am the elected chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, who are the culture authority under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act for the land that we're on. I would like to pay my respects to all elders past and present, to all First Nations and to you and the many nations of land you travelled from this evening. A welcome to country is an age-old tradition. It is more than just words, it is a spiritual process by honouring the ancestors' footsteps we are all walking in, continuing the practice of the many generations before us to the many generations to come. The boundaries of our traditional owners are written into the Earth's natural landscapes. The boundaries of the Aura are the Hawke's River in the north, the Nepean in the west, and the Georges River in the south. On behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, the elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal. I acknowledge the Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with these lands, our Mother Earth. Across this continent, there are hundreds of nations and tribes and clans existing here for over 60,000 years. This country's First Nations people are the oldest living culture of the world. And as we're all joined here this evening, let us all remember and acknowledge the many warriors that created pathways for all of us, the ones recognised and the ones we've never heard of. My people have always listened and learnt from each other, the environment, animals, elements and our ancestors. We don't live in isolation of body, culture, spirit, land and water because we are one, for in our blood it runs. And we need to reflect upon the footsteps we're leaving to know where we're heading, shaping a society, a country we can be proud of. As we gather here during Reconciliation Week and as you hear tonight's oration to address and reduce climate change, remember to reflect about my people's lived stories and our connection to this land, which were forever changed when we were erased from the view. My people lived in unison with this country for thousands of generations, learned from our ancient practices because we are still here. Think about the difference that you can make today that will become the milestones of the future, all our futures, so we can have a future. Don't just say the words, but put them into action. And to give us all guidance and strength, let us all draw upon my people's spirits as we continue on our journey. May my people's spirits walk with you and guide you as we strive forward for us all. Again, on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, welcome to Gadigal Land. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much, Yvonne Weldon, for that lovely welcome to country. Yvonne always 
welcomes people to country in a very personal way. And I think her message tonight about really thinking where our footsteps take us, not where we've just come from, but where we're going and looking after the land is very significant. Hello everyone, I'm Kim McKay. I have the great privilege to be the director and CEO of the Australian Museum. And I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people on which the museum stands, paying my respect to elders past, present and also emerging. We're very fortunate here at the Australian Museum to have many young emerging leaders on our team. And in fact, a couple of those emerging leaders Laura McBride and Mareko Smith curated Unsettled, our fantastic uh, new truth-telling exhibition, which if you haven't been down to see it already, I commend it to you. Uh, it opened just a couple of weeks ago and already is having such a great impact. Now, it is also my privilege to welcome you here tonight for the uh, inaugural Talbot oration uh, and the official opening of our new small exhibition here called Spark, which talks about Australian innovations tackling climate change. Now, of course, World Environment Day is this Saturday, the 5th of June, so it's very timely for us to be here tonight to learn more about climate solutions. The Australian Museum is committed to transforming the conversation around climate change through our world-leading science, collections, exhibitions, and education programs. Now, following the recent events, including the devastating black summer bushfires and coral bleaching incidents on the Great Barrier Reef, it's never been clearer that the time to act for all of us is now. And as part of this commitment, the Australian Museum has even had to overcome its own challenges in these historic buildings and work to reduce our carbon footprint becoming the first natural history museum in Australia to see the federal government's climate active certification and become a carbon neutral organisation. Our future goals, including converting electricity to a renewable energy supply and ultimately being carbon positive, along with the development of our, climate, our Centre for Climate Solutions, which you're going to hear more about soon. Now, tonight, we're going to hear from our keynote speaker, Professor Tim Flannery, who is also the Australian Museum's Distinguished Fellow in Climate Change. Now, Tim has been working on this speech, believe it or not, for about 18 months because COVID got in the way of it all, and the speech turned into a book <laughs> during that time. So we're going to hear a lot from Tim tonight. He's going to make the case for using Australia's approach to COVID-19 as a model for responding to climate change outlined in the Climate Cure solving the climate emergency in the era of COVID-19. Now, I know I saw Tim outside earlier by our, book, our uh, store signing books out there, and I know that the books are for sale later, and there's your plug. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> now, it's a great book, by the way, so it's a good plug to give. So following Tim's keynote address, he'll be joined by Professor Vina Sajwala for a panel discussion moderated by uh, former Australian Museum President and Sustainability Advisor Sam Mostyn to discuss solutions and actions the public can take to help minimise the impacts of climate change. Now, this is the inaugural Talbot Oration, named in honour of former Australian Museum Director Frank Talbot, who is here this evening. Frank, could I get you to stand just for one minute? 
so that people can see you. Thank you. Turn around, wave. He'll hate me doing that. <laughs> Frank is a living legend of the global museum community. In addition to being a former director here, he is the only Australian to have been director of the prestigious Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, DC, among so many other achievements. Throughout his life, he has been a true advocate for science and has left a lasting legacy for both the Australian Museum and the wider community by establishing the Australian Museum's Lizard Island Research Station on the Great Barrier Reef. And I want to acknowledge that Kate Hayward, who is the uh, president of the Lizard Island Reef Research Foundation, is also with us tonight. Thank you, Kate. So we've put together a short video to honour Frank and his vision for the future. The hugeness of the reef the incredible variety of its life have provided us with a program for years of continuing research. Over my lifetime, what one felt was an open-ended world. There were masses of stuff to learn. It's changed radically. Unless we realize that we are screwing up, we're going to have a very devastated planet to live on. I'm Frank Talbot. I was born in South Africa and brought up in Cape Town. It was a, a lovely youth. And my mother used to take me to the seaside. I became fascinated by things that grew in the half-tide pools, the fish particularly. I did reasonably well at school, got into the university, and I did a master's degree there, and later a PhD. Applied for a job at the Australian Museum. Yeah. And I got the job. After about six months, I thought, you know, I'm not going to leave this country. It's a, we were so welcomed in, in Australia. I eventually came director of the Australian Museum. And uh, we worked on a research project to start a research station on this island. My name is Frank Talbot. I'm interested in the biological problems of coral reef. During my my life, the change in science has been enormous. We now know what we are doing and what we have done. The communication of science, getting across what science does, what it is, how it can help, that's vital. And the museum has an enormously good and important role in this. Even perhaps more key than it was when I was young in helping mankind. Mm. <laughs> what a question. <laughs> so another thing Frank will hate me doing is telling you that Frank is now 91 and for sharing his knowledge and commitment with us. And we'll continue to celebrate Dr. Talbot's achievements in marine research, environmental studies in Australia and around the world into the future. So, one more time, could you please join me in thanking Frank for inspiring people around the world with his passion for science and leadership in the environment.
And now I'd like to introduce Dr Jenny Newell, the Australian Museum's Manager of Climate Change Projects and curator of the new Spark exhibition, which officially opens tonight. Jenny works on the cultural dimensions of climate change. She has worked in museums in Canberra, London and New York, and here at the Australian Museum, she finds ways to better engage broad audiences in climate change through the medium of the museum. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jenny Newell, who will share more with you about Spark. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Kim. And thank you, everyone. How wonderful to see so many people here. Obviously, people who share a connection or a commitment to tackling climate change. Like you, I'm committed to addressing this greatest of challenges. I'm fortunate to be working here, here on Gadigal land, in a museum that has decided that advancing action on climate change and sustainability is a key priority. I'm working with others to develop a climate solutions centre, drawing together people from many fields to increase public understanding and engage the disengaged. So stay tuned. Our new exhibition, Spark, shows the exciting ways people are working together across Australia to advance climate solutions. Four out of five Australians are concerned about climate change, but few of us have the confidence or drive to talk about it. Knowing about the solutions gives an easy and positive way into a conversation. So Spark is full of good news stories about the teams creating the technologies and approaches to better looking after each other and our land, air, water, and all living things. Many of those innovators are here with us tonight. And you can see how rich the range of solutions are when I tell you that we have loved working with the Firesticks Alliance Indigenous Corporation, the makers of Australia's first domestic hydrogen battery, LAVO, the amazing algae researchers at UTS, and world-leading innovators at University of New South Wales, CSIRO, Exiton Science, Diffuse Energy, Tritium Chargers, and ACE Electric Vehicles. It has been wonderful working with Professor Sahajwala and her team, taking recycling to the next level. Plus Wagners, who make earth-friendly concrete, and thanks Sam for coming down from Brisbane to be with us tonight, as well as regenerative farmers from Young, and Australian Museum scientists, conservation volunteers and climate action groups. I know Kim is especially fond of sea forest. They're the people who are stopping cows from burping out methane and the cow at the back of the exhibition was Kim's idea. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, thanks very much to Dennis Savick. Thanks to him, we have that sexy Australian electric motorbike at the beginning of our exhibition. The design team and I hoped to not just inform, but to inspire visitors to join in and support climate solutions. There are ideas flagged throughout the, throughout the exhibition and online, and we have a competition asking people to submit their own ideas for tackling climate change. So do explore Spark and head up to level two to see our permanent climate change exhibition too. And then please go ahead and talk about it. Thank you.
Thanks, Jen. And I must say, Jenny worked super hard pulling this together so it could be open for tonight. So thank you. And to all the team at the Australian Museum here tonight um, who, who worked so hard to make sure that climate change communication reaches the audiences we need it to. Now, museums are known as the most trusted institutions and natural history museums the most trusted of all, and I think that's because all of us grew up visiting them. And therefore, we've got a particular place to play to have good conversations about these sometimes difficult issues. They shouldn't be difficult, but they are in our society. And just before we get to the nitty-gritty with Tim, I want to just acknowledge that tonight we have uh, the president of the Australian Museum Trust, Brian Hartzer, with us, our former president, Dickon Loxton, and so many people who support the museum in so many ways. So thank you all for coming. Now let's talk about Tim. Mm -hmm. Professor Tim Flannery spent 15 years at the Australian Museum as Professor of Mammalian Biology, where he named so many species, I can't keep track of them. Every time I go into the collections and Tim says, oh yes, I found that and I found that and <laughs> what have you. And people don't realise that, that Tim's background is steeped in museums and particularly this institution. Of course, he's now an internationally acclaimed scientist, author, explorer and conservationist, and importantly, a former Australian of the Year. In recognition of his work on the Climate Commission and Climate Council, he was recently awarded the Geddes Environmental Medal by the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, a really prestigious global award, joining the likes of Greta Thunberg and Sir David Attenborough. In 2019, Professor Flannery returned home to us. He joined the Australian Museum as our distinguished fellow focused on researching the impacts of climate change, wearing, raising awareness of the issues, and especially the impacts on biodiversity and our coastal environments. Please join me to deliver the inaugural Talbot Oration, Professor Tim Flannery for The Climate Cure. Well, thank you so much, Kim, for that great introduction, and thank you all for being here this evening. I just want to reflect for a few moments on what an honour it is to be giving this inaugural Talbot oration at this particular time. Really, tonight, in my mind at least, is all about leadership. And I am so pleased to be able to celebrate the leadership of Frank Talbot, uh, the museum that I worked in was really in large part shaped by Frank's input, his genius, his dedication. Um, and and that, that shaped me. It helped me do what I have done. And tonight, of course, we're working in a museum that's being shaped again by Kim McKay. And what a marvellous institution it is turning into. And Kim, I just want to say thank you for thinking of celebrating and honouring Frank in this way. It's not every director who looks back and honours those who've come before, but you have the generosity to do that, and that, I think, is hugely important. Um, and what a team you've appointed. We've got Jenny Newell here, wonderful exhibition and all the work Jenny does. We've got Chris Helgen somewhere in the audience, who's um, head of AMRI, with the science arm of the institution, and many others. I think we're 
entering a new golden age for the museum, and that golden age will be focused particularly on sustainability and the role that museums can play in terms of achieving that. So tonight, what I want to talk about is the leadership that's required from Australia and Australians and, and the world as a whole, the leadership that's required to start dealing with this disaster, this emerging disaster of climate change that we're beginning to see. I really want to focus on solutions because the solutions are where the power lies to inspire young people, to change government, to get industry working. But in order to do that, we really need to know where we are right now in terms of climate change. And sadly, we're not in a, a great place. We really, in this year of 2021, are at a fork in the road. And that's because the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere have now reached a level of about 418 parts per million. The global average temperature as a result of that is now at about 1.2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average. And across Australia, the average surface temperature has risen to nearly 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial average already. Now you remember the scientists were informing the politicians at the Paris meeting that one and a half degrees is where we should be heading. Well, we're there already in Australia and there's no sign that the pollution stream we're producing is, is, um, is beginning to significantly abate, at least as yet. So that is a, a difficult, difficult situation to be in. And when I think about how we got there, you know, the, the problem has just grown so rapidly in recent years. I was made Australian of the Year uh, in 2007, in part because of my contribution to raising awareness about the climate issue. But you know, since that year, since 2007, globally we've produced about a third of all of the CO2, the greenhouse gas emissions that we've ever produced as a species. It's horrific the way that the problem just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we're at that fork in the road now where we need to turn things around. And we've now been warned well and truly by nature about what is in store if we don't do that. So I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the catastrophes we've all lived through in the last few years, but, but Frank, probably better than anyone, will know what the Great Barrier Reef was like before bleaching. You would remember that and have seen it. I, I was lucky enough to do my first dive on the reef in 1972, four years before the first bleaching event, and I still hold that memory as a very precious thing. I know that my children will never see that. I'll never see it again because the reef today is about 70% or more dead as a result of repeated bleaching episodes. And the scientists tell us that if we get to one and a half degrees above the pre-industrial average as a global uh, average temperature, the reef is going to be mostly dead. And if we go up to two degrees, it'll be 99.8% dead. So we know that there's a lot at stake. Just in the last three years, we've seen unbelievable megafires devastating this country. And, you know, it's easy to forget how bad things were during those fires. I don't know whether anyone here recalls just being in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever you happen to be and trying to breathe for those few months with the smoke. And you know, when I talk to our firefighters, people like Greg Mullins, who spent their entire life 
fighting fires in Australia, they will tell you in incredible detail about how the behaviour of fires have changed as the country's got drier and conditions have got hotter. You know, there is a lot, we know a lot about what is happening. And the culmination of the changing fire situation was that black summer of 2020 where we, we saw 21% of the temperate broadleaf forests of the nation go up in flames. The biggest area burnt before that in any fire season was 2%. This is a quantum leap, right, where we've hit a, a tipping point in the climate system where those mega fires, fire in Australia has now changed. It's become something very different to what it was before. I mean, the heat waves, the droughts, you know, we, we had the record dry year ever in Australia in 2019, the record dry year ever across the Murray-Darling Basin in 2020, and since then we've had floods that have killed people, flooded thousands of houses here in Sydney. We know what's coming down the pipeline unless we manage to get on top of this problem. You know, I've been doing this for a long time now, and I, I wrote in my book, The Climate Cure, I don't want this book to be an obituary for the Australia that I knew and, and love. You know? And it doesn't have to be, but if it's not to be, we need to start acting soon. And the reason we need to start acting soon is that we are getting to the point where unless we can cut emissions now, hard and fast, the, the, the ability to control the situation will slip away from us. Um, very much like if the Prime Minister, when we were facing COVID, had not decided to create a lockdown on the 13th of March. You know, what the chief scientist was telling him at that time is, unless you lock down now, when there are only hundreds of cases, he said, if you leave it a month, you'll lose the ability to lock down. The thing will be out of the bag. It'll be gone and running and nothing you can do. And the same is true with climate change. If we don't do the equivalent of lockdown in the next few years, the problem will likely, the probabilities are increasing that it will get out of our control. And what will happen is we'll hit a big tipping point in the Earth climate system. Either we'll see a melting of the poles, we'll see a, a, a change in the Amazonian rainforest that'll emit masses of carbon, maybe a change in ocean circulation, it might be a melting of the permafrost. And we can see all of these tipping points getting ever closer. In fact, the eastern Amazon rainforest has now changed from being a carbon sink to a carbon source due to droughts and fires and land clearing and all the rest. So we can see those tipping points getting closer and closer and we need to act before they tip because if we let them tip, if we let two or three of them tip, all of our actions will be for naught. We can't, the, the, the self-reinforcing nature of the, of the feedback loops will then just drive the climate into a hotter and hotter state till it hits another equilibrium somewhere and we don't know where that'll be. We don't know what that temperature will be. So having said all of that, we have made a lot of progress, just particularly in the last 12 months, I would say. When the world, the nations of the world got together for the, to agree in Paris that we needed to do something about climate change. We all agreed, yeah, we've got to keep the temperature below two degrees, preferably at one and a half degrees. Everyone agreed about that. But the pledges individual nations put up in order to achieve that were so weak that we would have hit 3.3 degrees at least by 2100, just based on those pledges. So the individual nations knew there was a problem but weren't willing to take responsibility. Since then, 
there's been some really fundamental changes. I remember I was in Paris looking at those negotiations and it was still, it was still a I win, you lose world. Everyone was saying, yes, we've got to cut emissions, we've got to get to uh, cleaner energy sources, but the cleaner energy sources back then were more expensive than they are today. So, and they were more expensive than fossil fuels. So, of course, people were hesitant. Since Paris in the last six years, we've seen the cost of wind and solar decline, where over most of the world, it's now cheaper to put in clean energy sources than polluting ones. So that has helped us hugely. We now live in a win-win world, where if you do the right thing, you get rewarded by cheaper energy prices. So that is a huge help. And we've seen with the election of Joe Biden in the US, a renewed push, I think, to really deal with this issue this year. So um, on Earth Day, the April um, uh, meeting, the virtual meeting that, that, that Biden held, um, a number of nations made additional pledges, additional to what they'd promised in Paris, to try to stabilise the climate. And some of those pledges were really substantial, the US particularly offered a massive cut in emissions before 2030, as did the EU, the UK, Japan and others. So with all of that action, we've managed to lower the bar a bit. Instead of heading towards 3.3 degrees, by the end of this century we're now heading to 2.4 degrees. Still not enough, but a very heartening start, I think. I must say, as much as I appreciated all of those pledges and all of those great initiatives that came out of that Earth Day and have, have, have come since then, I was really disheartened by the Australian government's approach, the federal government's approach. Um, we, as we have in previous meetings, were siding more with the polluters, more with the Saudi Arabias of the world, the petrostates, places like Russia, than with our trading, major trading partners and indeed our sort of economic equivalent, countries at the same level of development that we are. And that is really important. It's, it's important that we understand that the way Australia behaves on the international stage has a big impact globally. Yeah? If we can't do it, if we are wealthy nation blessed with renewable resources can't do the right thing in a win-win world, then the door is open to anyone not to do the right thing and that may cost us our future because time is running out. The sad truth is at the moment that on the balance of probabilities, regardless of what we do, in the next decade, we'll breach one and a half degrees above the pre-industrial average sometime in the 2030s. That complicates the problem for us because not only do we need to cut emissions as hard and fast as we can, we need to then make sure that we've got enough capacity to deal with the casualties because they'll grow as we go through one and a half degrees. And we also need to draw some of the gas out of the air. We need to go through that threshold but then develop means of getting some of the gas out of the air so we come back down out the other side. So it's a more complicated world than the one we've been talking about in Paris um, or Copenhagen before that. And 
it's a world, again, in which Australia, we can play such an important role in all three of those, those areas. I think, you know, Australia's position in the world is really, we are sort of a, an exemplar of the, the dilemma the whole world faces. You know, everyone likes the familiar. The system that's existing at the moment kind of works for people. Yes, there's problems with it, but we know it sort of works. To trust to something entirely new, people are obviously a bit apprehensive. But here in Australia, you know, we've done incredibly well out of the fossil fuel era. You know, we're the world's largest exporter of coal by calorific value. We're the world's largest exporter of natural gas. They're two out of the three fossil fuels. So to let go of that and to sort of grasp this new future that's all about clean energy and hydrogen and, and all of the rest of it is a, is a fraught thing for Australians. And that's why I think the politics of fear have played out so profoundly in this country. The thing that amazes me, though, about it is that at the state level, we're doing so well. It doesn't matter whether the estate's run by a Liberal government or a Labor government. They're all in agreement that clean energy is the way forward. And here in New South Wales, for example, we have legislated a series of changes that should see our electricity grid in this state do away with most fossil fuels by about 2030, maybe a little bit after that. But that's a, that's a fantastic outcome. So I, I, I struggle with this situation where the states are doing well, individuals are doing well. We lead the world in terms of solar panel installations on, on houses. And our industries are doing well. Look at our wealthiest people, Twiggy Forest, Mike Cannon-Brooks, and the investments they're making. And yet, federally, we're still held back. And as I said, it really counts what happens federally because it's only the federal government that can represent us nationally at the moment. Maybe something will change in future about that, but at the moment, that is the role. They're the ones who can set the targets. They're the ones who can say what Australia's position is. And it's very, very important that that the message that's coming out of Australia in coming years is positive. So the reason that, that, that this year is so important is that if you look at what we need to do to stabilise the climate, so if we need to, yeah, it's, it's complicated maths, but this is the best way to think about it. If you look at what we need to do to go through one and a half degrees but then come back to within one and a half degrees, by the end of this century. So we go out of it for a while, but then we come back in. Is we need to be drawing down around about 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. And there are ways that that can be done. But this is, um, it, it's really important to keep that figure in mind. And in order to keep it at 10 gigatons, what we need to do nationally and the world needs to do is to cut our emissions of greenhouse gases by about 7% a year, between 7 and 8% a year, for the next 10 years, between now and 2030. That first part of the equation of, of, of cutting the emissions by 7% a year, it's not, it's not that difficult. I hate to say it. it, might, it look, it's difficult in that, yes, it's a big change. But there are numerous groups who study Australia's electricity system and the US system and whatever who have charted pathways forward that with modest investment we can have a renewed energy sector that's running basically clean, free of fossil fuels. 
Now, you know, by 2030, we may have a few gas-fired power plants still running just on the rare occasions that we don't have enough wind or solar or, or there's high demand or whatever. But that's not worth worrying about, really. You know, um, we, we know we can do it. What we need is the will to start acting. Instead, what we're seeing is this incredible reluctance, as I was talking about. You know, we've got a federal government talking about a gas-fired a gas recovery from COVID. Um, who've committed to build a new gas-fired power plant here in, in New South Wales. I, I cannot find, and I've looked, I cannot find a single expert study that suggests we need any more fossil fuel-fired power plants uh, to, to, to make the transition. They just they don't exist. Um, in Queensland, I don't know whether you caught up with the news of the Calide uh, power plant exploding. That was Australia's most recent coal-fired power plant and the most efficient of our coal-fired power plants. And what's the Queensland government's response, or the energy authority run by Queensland? They want to rebuild that turbine at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars, instead of using a battery and wind and solar and stuff, and moving beyond coal. We shall see. But that's part of the problem. So we, as Australians, have to figure out how we are going to overcome those impediments. They're really key ones, and they're not something we can put off. They're something that's got to start to be dealt with this year, next year, and the year after. I think that if you consider what needs to be done, it can look big, it can look overwhelming, but the reality shows us that we can do such things. Um, and that's where I just want to go back to the federal government's approach to COVID. I mean, I, do you remember during the fires, Scott Morrison was on holiday in Hawaii. You know, yes, we'd had our emergency leaders at the Climate Council desperately trying to contact the Prime Minister since the April, previous April, saying, we, 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 this is going to be a horrific fire year. We need to be prepared as a nation. Not interested. Sounded too much like climate change. But to give the man his you know, uh, due, um, with COVID, the government was absolutely on the ball. I, I met our chief medical officer on January 26 that year when the, the, the outbreak was brand new, and I could see his concern. I could see that he, he wanted action for Australia. And talking to the Prime Minister, he managed to convince the government that we needed to stop flights from China that had a big economic impact. But this Conservative government interested in fiscal responsibility and economy did it. And then, two weeks before the WHO had called the COVID pandemic a pandemic, the Australian government declared a pandemic, a global pandemic. Swift action based on good science that saved us so much. And then on the 13th of March, the Prime Minister stepped up and announced um, the lockdown, the beginnings of that process. Stop shaking hands with people and we were soon in a lockdown. And the economic costs of that lockdown were, were very substantial. There's absolutely no doubt about that. It was a big, big impact, a very big thing to do. But if we had not done that, we could have been like the rest of the world. And the Prime Minister had a limited time to act. You know, if he'd left that decision a month, the pandemic may well have been out of control. But he acted at a time very early. And you know, when I think about that from a climate perspective, you know, people say, oh, a lot of people don't see climate change. They don't 
recognise that it's not always front of mind. Well, I think back to that COVID time in March last year, I didn't know anyone who had COVID. Did anyone here know anyone much who had COVID? You know, we'd, we'd read about it in the news, we'd heard about it, we were aware there was hundreds of cases, but it wasn't something that was kind of knocking on your front door, you know, and yet the government acted, felt authorised to act to do that. We, I, I just, I firmly believe if we can do that with COVID, we can do it with climate change. And the downside of doing it with climate change is nothing like as great as doing it with COVID. Honestly, because it's now a win-win situation. We can move through to a cleaner energy base, cut that, those emissions 7% a year, and develop entire new industries, as people who are in the business of making money know. We can do it. It's just, it is a matter of actually conviction, of, of, of now just making that move. We're held back by a political block, not by uh, any kind of structural block in terms of moving forward. One, and then, you know, the other thing the government did with COVID, so there was the lockdown. There was then, if you recall, a huge amount of talk about whether we had enough emergency capacity to deal with what may have been thousands of, of, of casualties. People working out, did we have 20,000 emergency beds and respirators, which was the worst case scenario planning. <coughs> and the government, I must say, did a really good job with that too. We, we made sure we had the capacity that was required for any casualties. In terms of climate change, this government, the federal government, particularly is moving to some degree in terms of dealing with this. You know, we now have a new authority being set up in, in, um, in Canberra where some of the people who were in a, a previous entity of government called NCARF, I don't know whether you know that about climate adaptation uh, entity, are coming back into government and are starting to provide advice on some of the potential future impacts. We've also seen the federal government um, uh, make a $600 million um, uh, pool of money available for um, catastrophes, particularly in northern Australia. And these are important things, but they are very, very baby steps compared with where we need to be. You know, if you want to deal with the emergency room um, for climate change, it's a really big room, you know? There's got to be space in that emergency room for the Great Barrier Reef. We have to work out what we can do to give the Great Barrier Reef the very best chance of survival. We have to make sure that our biodiversity as a whole has the best chance of survival. We've got to look at our coastal infrastructure. You know, how are we going to prioritise what is saved, what is moved um, as the seas rise? And you know, we're already seeing this. So you, you travel, I'd just say travel around Australia, have a look at the coast. Some places it might be prograding, getting bigger, but there's a lot of places where the coast is being eaten away by sea level rise, from Tasmania to Torres Strait. And we're already wasting millions and millions of dollars through inappropriately uh, funding things that shouldn't be done. You know, a great example is on Saibai Island up in Torres Strait. Just a few years ago, the federal government uh, saw that the, the, the town was being inundated. They built a seawall at the cost of $25 million. It lasted less than a year. Yeah. Some areas can be defended, other areas have to be just surrendered and you move. We need a triage approach to that sort of stuff. Um, we need to look at, honestly, our food security. And in a place like Australia, you might think that sounds crazy, but just look at the weather over the last few years and the whiplash we've seen from the driest year on record in the Murray-Darling Basin through to the floods that we've seen today. 
We, we need an emergency room that's big enough that it covers everything from heatwave deaths uh, in, in medicine, um, through to smoke inhalation, through to our biodiversity. This, you know, this needs, the emergency room for climate change needs to be a core business of government. So we've got a long way to go. We're starting, but we've got a long way to go to get to that point. The third element in the, the government's response to the, the COVID pandemic was the search for a vaccine. And I, I know some of the great immunologists and vaccine um, people in Australia. And I remember asking them at the time, is this a possibility that we'd get a, a vaccine for a coronavirus? And the basic message they said is, we don't know. Nobody's ever developed a, a vaccine for a coronavirus before. Maybe it's going to be possible. But they all said, I can tell you two things. One is it's going to take a long time. And secondly, it's going to be really expensive. And they were right about both of those things. Yeah? But today we have a vaccine. The rollout isn't fast enough. Absolutely agreed. But we do have a vaccine. And there's a foreseeable end to the current crisis, at least. So in terms of climate change, is there the equivalent of a vaccine? And there absolutely is. And if you want to understand what that is, I can do nothing much better than recommend you watch David Attenborough's witness statement about his life on, on this planet. And, you know, towards the end of that witness statement, what he says is that what we need to do now is to restore Earth's function. And he says that because the current climate system and the balance of gases in the atmosphere is created by life itself. It's created by our forests and by our oceans, particularly. So he lays out a vision of restoring our forests, of repairing the ocean. You know, at the, at the moment, the damage, those who are interested in oceans know this better than anyone, the damage that's occurring in the oceans is just going deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, we're now trawling in very deep waters around the world, stirring up carbon that's been stored for millennia and millennia and releasing it back into the system, as well as destroying life on the seafloor that helps sequester that carbon. We can see that damage occurring and we need to be aware that the oceans, they're the hidden puppet masters of the entire climate system, the oceans. If the oceans are healthy, the planet will remain healthy. So we need desperately to honour that vision that David Attenborough gave us of letting our earth heal itself, restoring the forests, restoring the soils, restoring the oceans. This is not just a, a, a kind of an easy add-on, this is a core business. And if we do that, we'll still probably be short of those 10 gigatons a year. We still won't have the full drawdown capacity we need. There are, thankfully, a few other options, and I've spent much of the last decade looking at these options, trying to work out where the most effective vaccine lies. <laughs> One of those options is seaweed farming. Now, we've heard a little bit about seaweed farming today. We've heard about Sam Alston and his marvellous um, <coughs> red seaweed farm off Tasmania. I might just take a second explaining that because it's been raised by Kim and others. So, Sam Alston, he was a fashion designer until about five years ago. He came with a climate council, um, group of people from the climate council to Heron Island on the Great Barrier Reef to look at the Barrier Reef and he heard me talk about seaweed. I'm a bit of a seaweed fanatic. And he decided as a result of that to change his whole career. He gave away fashion design, he went into seaweed farming and what he's done is develop 
a farm of a particular red seaweed called Asparagopsis. Don't know whether you know about this. Um, it's a very common seaweed in southern Australia. Um, it has the peculiar property of producing a bromine compound that stops the little bacteria that live in the cow's rumen from producing methane. And you need a tiny amount of it to do that. You need 25 grams per cow per day, a little bit like that. And that reduces the methane emissions in cattle by 98.8%. Incredible, huh? And what's, that's great news for methane emissions. It's also really good news for farmers because all of that energy that's in the methane that's normally lost to the cow actually gets returned to the cow. So it's like giving a cow 20% more food. It's a healthier animal. So you need to feed it less, it's healthier, it grows faster. It's a great outcome overall. So that's just one seaweed solution. But the world is full of potential seaweed solutions. Another one is just letting the seaweed sink to the ocean bottom. We know that seaweed, uh, the transport of seaweed into the deep ocean is one of the major ways carbon gets taken out of the atmosphere and sequestered in the ocean bottom. So if we can enhance that transport of seaweed, we'll be doing something really good for our planet. Now I know you know, we have to tread carefully with all of these things. This is a planetary scale intervention, so we have to be careful. But I'm heartened by the seaweed solution because we know it occurs naturally. We know seaweed grows, it goes down submarine canyons into the deep ocean where it's eaten by sea cucumbers, and the carbon stays in the, the bottom. So if we can put a bit more seaweed in, even if it's a few gigatons a year, that's a really, I think, a positive move. And it, to understand why this is important, it's also important you have to know about the scale of the deep ocean. Right? The ocean below 3,000 metres is 95% of all habitat on Earth. It is enormous. The ocean itself is 500 times bigger than the atmosphere. So if you take, if we could theoretically grab half of all of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and shove it straight into the deep ocean right now, we'd reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere obviously by 50%. We'd increase the CO2 in the deep ocean by, anyone want to guess? 2%. Right? The deep ocean is really big. That's why it's the hidden puppet master of the whole system. It's a receptacle for the carbon. It's where most of the stuff goes to keep the balance of our planet. So that's really important. Another way we can, do, we can deal with the problem is by using a group of rocks called silicate rocks. They're really common in Australia. Olivine is a good example of a silicate rock. Grind up a kilogram of olivine, for example, you capture 1.25 kilograms of CO2 as that olivine decomposes. And in the right conditions, it'll decompose in a couple of weeks. There's already been work done just last year on farms, particularly growing corn in the US, where people have taken olivine rock, spread it over the farmland, and seen that the crop yield increases by about 12% because all the fresh minerals are getting in there. So not only are you taking CO2 out of the air, you're increasing your crop yields. The, the big problem with the silicate rock solution is that at the moment we dig up, we quarry and we transport rock using fossil fuels. So that negates the benefit you get. But if we can clean up our energy system, clean up our transport system, in the next 10 or 15 years. We will open up an enormous opportunity for a very potent vaccine, a very potent vaccine that can take many gigatons of CO2 out of the 
out of the air per year. And by the way, olivine rocks and the deep ocean, they're the two, way, two biggest ways that the Earth regulates its own climate system. So we know we can do this, but the first step to doing it is cleaning up the grid. Every coal-fired power plant that closes down is a step closer to that. Every gas plant that isn't built or closes down is a step closer to giving us the vaccine as well as the drawdown we need. So this is a holistic transition that we're looking at in Australia. I think we've got a really rough ride ahead of us. We have to win the political battle. We have won so much, but we now this year have to win the final bit of that battle, I think. We have to see Australia playing a positive role at the Glasgow meeting. And that will only come about if there's sufficient outrage in the community about the lack of action and the lack of movement so far. We have to start the transition. We have to really kick-start it in a big way and see those emissions starting to, to drop. We have to start restoring the land, and that's a, a massive job. I mean, it's a... You know, we have had two centuries of pioneering destruction of our environment behind us. And we heard in our Welcome to Country that, about that very different relationship. And the offer was made from our Indigenous leaders to, be, to go on the journey with them to start using the land differently, to start living differently on the land, envisaging it differently. That needs to become our law if we want to start repairing our planet. And then the long journey, the long journey to creating that vaccine. We can do it bit by bit. It's going to be a long journey. It's going to be a hard journey. But we can't really expect a great outcome without it. So that's where we are. We know where we need to go. Frank, your leadership got us to where this museum is today. Kim, your leadership has seen us blossom. We now need to take leadership positions, all of us, to make sure that over the coming years, we get the outcome that we know we all need. So th thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, I think creating that parallel between the COVID vaccine and the vaccine we need for climate change solutions is a very real one. I had my AstraZeneca jab on uh, Monday and I'm absolutely fine, <laughs> want you to know. Uh, and I know that having been involved in the environmental movement and climate change for about 30 years now, that um, I'm not as fine there. But it, I take great heart when I know people like Tim and others are leading the way with some of these great new technologies. And uh, if you want to know more about the seaweed, it's at the very back of the Spark exhibition, that Tasmanian seaweed innovation there. And it shows you exactly those 25 milligrams of seaweed that are required. And you'll see, as Jenny said, my cow at the back, um, which I all want you to take photos of and Instagram it or tweet it out there because it's fantastic. But Tim, thank you so much, and thank you for creating a book out of COVID. Um, he's very innovative in that way. I've, how many books have you written now? I don't know. He doesn't remember. <laughs> of course. Uh, so Tim is going to wait here on stage while I introduce our other panellists 
for this evening. Sam Mostaneo and Professor Vina Sajwala. Please come up. Sam will be our panel moderator. Uh, she is, of course, a former president of the Australian Museum Trust and is now a non-executive director and sustainability advisor with a long history of governance roles across business, sport, the arts, policy, diversity, Indigenous and women's affairs and the not-for-profit sector. I don't know how she has time to do any... She does all of these things. Her corporate roles have encompassed purpose, culture and human resources, corporate and government affairs, community engagement and sustainability. She is a passionate Sydney Swans fan, <laughs> is a lawyer by training and is also the current president of Chief Executive Women in Australia and a leading light and inspiration in our community. Now alongside Sam is Professor Vina Shajwala, she is a leading expert, it says, and this is what the notes I were given said, in the field of recycling science. Now, I didn't know if they meant that she recycled science or <laughs> that she was in the field of science recycling, but I've known her for a very long time. And if you uh, saw her on the ABC recently uh, with her wonderful program showing how she is actually using recycling technology to deliver new science and new building materials. It is extraordinary what she's done for many years. She's the founding director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology at the University of New South Wales and is now producing a new generation of green materials, products and resources made entirely or primarily from waste. Vina also heads the ARC Industrial Transformation Research Hub for Green Manufacturing, a leading national research centre that works in collaboration with industry to ensure new science is translated into real-world environmental and economic benefits. So if you can keep your questions to the end, I know we'll have some time for that and Sam will take those, uh, that would be terrific and we'll have some time for that discussion. Uh, you might have noticed the hashtags that were on the screen earlier. I can't remember what they are, but don't worry. We'll work it out. You'll find them. And with that, I'm going to hand over to the fantastic Sam Mostyn for our discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, we have only a little bit of time for this conversation because we want to hold time for you. So we'll leave 10 minutes, so at 10 to 8, I have to guarantee that the, those of you that would like to come forward will have some microphones, I think, here and here for you to come forward. So in the meantime, um, I'm going to have a little conversation with Vina and Tim and, and then hold your questions uh, for that last 10 minutes. So Tim, I'll give you a bit of a break just for a moment. Um, and I had a question for Vina because um, you are the micro recycling science <laughs> pioneer and, um, and that does mean a lot. And I, I wonder whether you could share with the audience tonight, given what Tim has said about just how much pressure there is on to, for all of us to be doing our work towards reducing climate change. Um, what it is about recycling that makes it less than just the thing we do when we push our bins out at night. Can you, re can you give us the reimagination of recycling, in, given what Tim has said? And I'll, I'll just remind Vina that when I first met her many years ago, she said to me, never forget that every single thing that you see or touch or have in your life 
is ready to be turned into its next life. And I thought maybe we'd start there with you about why recycling is so important. Mm. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Sam. And, and I'd like to, of course, acknowledge the fabulous uh, talk uh, that Tim has just given us. Very inspiring, Tim. Um, I, I do want to, of course, uh, yeah, take us back to that early uh, conversation, which is absolutely right, even if you look at it in the simplest level. If we look at any product, uh, we really shouldn't be calling anything a waste, even if it has stopped functioning, if it has become obsolete, because fundamentally what it does contain are very useful materials. So if you actually drill down um, at that molecular level, you've actually got materials that can then be reformed and converted into new products over and over again. And, and I guess the advantage of doing that, if you can sort of connect it to the topic of conversation here today around climate change, is to put it quite simply, you've actually created a material in the first instance from virgin resources. So if I go back and look at something as basic as glass, and I'll come back and connect it to um, one of the products that we have here today where we've used recycled glass um, with waste textiles in, in the production of these uh, green ceramic products for our built environment. If you actually now start to look at each of these different kinds of materials, whether it's about glass or steel, making it first time from virgin resources costs a certain amount of energy. Every time you then go back, and recycle it and reform it and use it, that initial energy that went into making it is still embedded in that material. So what you've actually done is you've actually reformed it, but that initial energy that went into making it is still in there in that material. So quite simply, when you're actually recycling you know, these kinds of things like steel and glass, you've actually saved on energy and you've therefore saved on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the important point in all of this, you've also achieved ultimately the ability to in fact make sure that it shouldn't end up in landfill. So that ability to remanufacture is the other half. So if you can think about electricity and energy, but then the other half of greenhouse gas emissions and, and how much um, energy is used is, is actually making things, whether they are metals or plastics or glass, and of course, the more complex our products get, um, you know, our, our solar panels, our energy storage devices like batteries, you actually need all of those materials. So effectively thinking at that level where you can harness all of the existing feedstock that we have, not putting it into landfill, but seeing it as a resource, uh, a, a material and a resource that's just waiting to be harnessed, uh, is, is a nice way to, to think about the connectivity with, um, with climate and, and, of course, our ability to remanufacture products. It's brilliant. And um, <laughs> Brian has been doing this. Yes, I think that's right. Um, and you can read and see more of Vina's work in the Spark exhibition. It's one of the, the stands towards the back. But you can read more about the examples of, of what Vina's just described. Tim. There was so much in your oration tonight. We could go in all sorts of directions, but we don't have a lot of time. So I wanted to, I guess, you spent quite a bit of time talking about what we need government to do, mm. and government will follow when, when the population, I think, makes it clear that they will not put up with a government that doesn't act. So if we put government to one side for a moment, and we think about this being the critical decade, and that perhaps our actions have to be about net zero by 2030, yep rather than 2050, if we reset our time horizons to deal with the crisis that you describe, what does it mean for us right now? What does it mean for this audience? What does it mean when we leave today? 
when we know that what's going on is actually the seven biggest polluting industries working globally that can help solve this rather than just nation states and through their governments, but it's actually us and our relationship to those polluting industries. What is it that you'd say we do if we're starting right now to 2030? Yeah, well, look, that is the, the great question. And I, I guess I outlined at the start of my oration the, the need for leadership. And, and leadership is, is not just about leaders, it's about everyone in an organisation or in a family or in a society. We can all exert an active leadership. So it might be looking at your superannuation and deciding you want to shift it to a, 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 an entity that it's much more environmentally aware. It might be if you've got a kid in school going up to your principal in the you know, parent-teacher meeting and, and saying, look, can we help? Can we can we help with the electricity? You know, can we put some solar panels on? How are we going to deal with recycling, other sustainability issues? And that, while it might seem like a small thing, the key thing you're doing is exerting some leadership. It becomes much more acceptable once people hear others saying this is a good idea for them to act as well. So I think that there's so many levels that you can, we can act on. I mean, and yes, politics is a... It's our Frankenstein's monster, isn't it? That comes out of us, really, as a as a people. Um, you know, we can we can have an influence on that. We we are we have representatives. We can write to. We can discuss. We can engage and say either yes, you're doing a great job, or you're not. You know, and that is powerful. So this is the year to do it. This is the year where we have to actually get over that hump of resistance, I think, and start on that journey. Just as we did with COVID. Yeah, just, just like we did with COVID. We we had a great last year was a tough year but we did it and i know you use that wonderful analogy of the the, the covid moment and the cure essentially the start being the closing of the borders and the us all playing our part i know you 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 canvassed a whole lot of things that we need to do and you've talked about some solutions but if there was a single act that had to happen right now if you were in charge the thing you would do that would change the dynamic for our response to climate change as we did with covid what would that be what is the what is the close the border equivalent yeah. in, in climate? For Australia? For Australia, right now. Yeah, what would you do? I think what I would do is call a great national assembly to look at the way Australians relate with their lands and waters and hear in a very deep way how we need to change. So engage the Indigenous community, engage the farming community and others and chart a new pathway that would, would feed through with new laws and regulations and attitudes about how we deal with this. I think, it, I'm sorry, that's my passion. Yeah, yeah, no, you know, no. I know it's, I want to cold, close down the coal-fired power plants and everything else, but I do think that that relationship with land is absolutely key. And, and perhaps a National Assembly of people would be a good starting point to do that. Yeah, I think, and it goes to our democracy, it goes to yeah. citizens um, being back involved in the, the act of a democracy that can manage these things, because yeah. we're not an autocracy, we don't, we don't no. operate in that way. So I think... Your idea has great merit. I wonder if our audience knows that um, some of the rebuilds of economies post-COVID have actually incorporated significant percentages of the rebuild into climate solutions. Yeah, um, right. Some of them up to 30 or 40% of their billions of dollars towards recovery have gone into yeah. smart solutions. Yeah. This country, you'll see that none of our COVID recovery has actually included a, a, a significant percentage of commitment to, I think it's sitting at less than 0.5% of COVID recovery monies will actually end up in a climate-related initiative compared to 30 or 40% when you look towards Europe. So it's... 
there I are things we're just not doing um, with the money we're using right now. Yeah. How is it, Sam, that our government, federal government, can get away with this idea of a gas-fired recovery? How is this mm. when there is not a shred? There's not one study they can point to yeah. to support this. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Vina, I, um, I was talking to a fashion retailer the other day who had closed up her shop recently in inner Sydney, and she said that one of the reasons she had closed her shop, it was actually pre-COVID, was that a few days after Craig Rucastle's War on Waste show showed the pile of clothes in mm. Martin Place, that her high-end customers started to say, I don't need to buy another pair of black trousers because I have five already. And until that stage, she'd been able to sell them a new pair of black trousers every year. Um, and so that single act of showing the waste caused a shift in a consumer at, at a certain level. I just wonder if you can see from your, the, the speed at which you're moving with recycling, whether we can supercharge this in this 2030 environment um, to make a significant contribution to climate action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things, of course, when we talk about raising awareness and understanding and the kinds of conversations we're having here tonight. Uh, so so th I want to thank Kim, of course, for really that vision to be able to bring together um, all of us in this in a place like this. And if you look at examples of textiles and, and you look at the kinds of impact that these industries are having, so whether it's talking about fast fashion or fast furniture, um, there is a whole lot of material that goes into making. Um, and of course, if you look at all the synthetics that go into making it, we'll drill it down to the fundamentals, they are plastics. So you actually had to then go back and say, right, I'm going to stop that consumption, or I'm going to reduce that consumption by a significant amount. At a personal level, you're already doing something that can be seen as a positive mm. action. So I think to me, absolutely raising that awareness and to be able to say, right, this is how we can all take action to be able to understand that a lot of these kinds of products of course require energy and they, they contribute to carbon. Um, so that's how we can play our part. But then of course recognizing the role of recycling is to be able to say, one, we reduce our consumption, so we've talked about that. Two, then what we're really saying is, okay, we've used materials. When a material stops functioning, so like we were talking about um, materials are not working anymore or becoming obsolete, whether it's our electronics or indeed our clothes, in all of these cases, fundamentally bringing those materials back to life, whether they are our synthetic you know, polymeric materials or indeed metallics and oxides and everything else that's present in our waste batteries, for instance, if I can sort of contrast these obvious things coming out of all of us as consumers, the ability to then play a part where collectively we can see that if we can work with our local governments, if we can actually support those businesses that are actually wanting to do the right thing, I think we will then create a collective future that also shows that as Australians, we are actually playing our part. So that's the important key message here is how do we all play our part? But of course, collectively, we can support those businesses. We can do the right thing. I mean, the example of that product that we have out here, the exhibition with green ceramics, um, you know, I've got to acknowledge the fact that if it weren't for, and if you don't mind me saying this, Sam, that I think you're the person who actually kind of made it happen behind the scenes, and I didn't even know about it. This was Sam in, in one of her various roles, um, you know, suggesting or informing uh, an organization on which she sits on the board. This is Mervac. I guess from our perspective, this is exactly what we talk about as people who, in their role as leaders, are influencing what businesses can do. And, and we needed that to happen because it was about that science and technology that came out of our labs 
then had to be translated into real world. Mm -hmm. and, and without that collaboration between research and businesses, we wouldn't be able to demonstrate that it is possible. So it wasn't enough for us to, of course, just make it in a lab. And yes, that's a lot of research that goes into making that happen. But that partnership was so critical for us. Mm -hmm. It gives everyone that confidence. And I think most importantly, it inspires others to do the right thing. And you're very kind to say that. But uh, one of the things that we've seen at that organisation at, at Mervac is that more and more people want to buy their first home or their apartment with sustainability credentials. Mm -hmm. And part of that credentialing is the fact that the tiles uh, built for, are made by your micro factory um, out of complete 100% waste product. And that's becoming a feature where it used to be, do you want a marble top um, as a feature? It's now, I want the recycled, I want Venus recycled tiles in, the, in my house before I move in. So. It, it, we need pathways, we need many pathways. Um, I have no much, not much more time in this conversation because we don't want to keep you here past eight o'clock. So I've got one last question for each of you before we open up the floor to the audience. So the, my question is the same to both of you um, and to leave people, I guess, with a sense of optimism. What excites you most about the opportunity for us to collectively or um, it, it, with a particular invention. You've mentioned two already tonight, Tim, but what excites you most about the chance for us to do this in the next decade? What is the, the thing, the ambition that, that, give, that gives you the kind of enthusiasm to keep going after all the work that both of you have done? Tim? Oh, wow. Um, look, I just think that we are on the brink of a much better world. You know, things are, are potentially, you know. Um, we, We've lived with this filthy, polluting industrial model now for two centuries and we know the cost of it. And we know the cost of the mindset that goes with it. We can change that and, and live in a much better world. And young people get that. You know, you go to a primary school, <laughs> you'll see it. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Rima? Oh, I've, got to, I've got to use this story. I was travelling through regional South Australia just over the last few uh, days and on the weekend, I visited this, uh, this beautiful uh, not-for-profit um, area and it's called the Father's Farm. Uh, what I really loved about it, and this is where I get inspired when I, when I visit places like that, the, the inspiration and the hope and the optimism is you can have a small not-for-profit collecting e-waste um, and, and absolutely excited about the fact that they know that there is a lot of positive outcomes they can create there. But that integration between science, technology, social outcomes, people's well-being, I mean, the conversations that we had on that Saturday afternoon were so inspiring because all of these volunteers and people who were working in this place were actually not realizing that what was coming out of their mouth was just something that, that would have made all of us cry. I mean, it was one of those moments where you think, wow, they're, they're not only coming there because they're passionate about the environment, they want to recycle, but somewhere in there was they could see that it's a mentoring program for, for young people. Um, to bring in young people into that space and to get them excited about science, but also help them kind of look after their well-being and, and be there for each other. I think to me that's really what, um, what our future is going to be all about. It's that beautiful combination of caring for each other, caring for our planet and our people. So amidst this crisis, we're talking about a better world, mm. both of you identified that. Wonderful. Now over to you. There are two microphones, one on this side and one just behind Kim. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We've got very little time, so best to ask a quick question um, and for us to hear from, from Tim and Vina. So just give us your name and, and your question, sir. Uh, good day. George Papanikla is my name. Um, yeah, 
My question actually might address the problem with the gas station uh, conundrum. Um, in uh, martial arts, often, uh, say like judo, the idea of working against an opponent who's you know, combating you, you don't use your force against their force, you turn around and use their force and your force to get things to, to move. No, we don't want to overthrow our opponents in a damaging mm. sense, but what we could do is actually use their own arguments against them. So what I particularly would suggest Hydrogen has been uh, touted as obviously one of the biggest possibilities for renewable energy in the future and Australia is uh, very well placed because of our existing gas infrastructure that you alluded to. Um, could we use the, the idea of this gas station actually go with it but only on the sense that it's forward compatible as a potential hydrogen producing facility? And therefore, the argument that that's used, you know, sort of uh, by you know, climate change deniers, mm. they can't, in a sense, deny the fact that you're saying build your gas station, which make it mm. hydrogen compatible. So I just wondered what you think about that possibility. Sure. Look, I mean, that's what the government's done. They've said that they'll build a station which is eventually hydrogen compatible. But in the meantime, it'll run on gas, and who knows whether we'll ever be using hydrogen to burn for electricity. I mean, it's not, not you know. The, at the moment, it's wind, solar, or fossil fuels. But if it's if it's built, then the, the market then if it's built, the market forces will then force it to be used more more quickly. The way it's going, well, it depends on the cost. Yeah. But great, great question and comment. Yeah, and if you is, want yeah. to see the hydrogen story, it's in the Spark exhibition. There's a great mm. a great uh, hydrogen panel there for mm. you. We'll go over here, sir. Uh, good evening, Sam, Vina and Tim. Uh, my name is John Hunt. I'm an almost retired uh, environmental scientist. Uh, and Tim, just in case you don't remember, we met at the recycling bins at Barara Waters recently <laughs> <laughs> when Indeed, you were yeah, depositing yeah. some flood That's debris right. for recycling. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've had the uh, recent opportunity to rejoin with about 30 colleagues from my graduating class in geology at the University of New South Wales in 1975 to discuss climate change. And I have been astounded by the number of highly qualified professionals who are advocating climate denial positions and the amount of literature that they've actually put on the table. You, you might like to comment on that in due course, but my question is, before the, uh, the non-climate change scientists like myself, what resources are there that we can actually get hold of to counter this sort of thing without having to go back to university and doing another yeah, yeah. degree? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, look, there's, can I answer Vinny? Yeah, of course. There's yeah. lots of stuff. The, the Climate Council has got lots of good reports. There's, you know, it, there's a lot of very authoritative material online, but I'd start with the Climate Council for Australia. Yeah, yeah, very easy to, to on the website and every report the Climate Council has released in the last 10 years is there um, and it has all the science data but it communicates in such a, an exceptionally easy way that um, I think it's, your, it's one of your best resources and it sends you to other resources. Did you have an answer to that one, Vina? No, that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah, great. We'll go with this side. Hi, I'm Rachel Baker. I'm part of the AYCC, which is the Australian yeah, Youth Climate Coalition specifically. I founded the Blue Mountains branch. What's the best way that we can like make a change like a, like is it like the climate strikes how can we like get the government to make changes thank you and congratulations on everything you do with AYCC yeah. it's it's an inspiration to all the older ones of us but you're you're driving great change Vina, mm -hmm. do you have a Oh, look, I, I would actually start at the local level where, you know, you can actually, you know, create that advocacy in terms of practical um, actions that, you know, whether it's, it's with local um, communities, um, you know, not-for-profit groups, school groups, and so on, uh, to be able to talk about, 
you know, an understanding of what kind of actions can be taken. When we've, we've given examples of recycling here tonight, I think in all of this is about ultimately people wanting wanting to take on a solution. I think we've talked about um, you know textiles, and if if we're going to avoid all of that excess consumption from going to landfill, I think we're all so good and we love our op shops and all of that. I think we need to start to expand that way of thinking that there is a lot of waste that gets thrown away. And I think we need to start to think about more of a shared economy where sharing of, of our products and um, you know, keeping those products out of landfill, therefore reducing uh, you know, that, that climate impact um, and carbon emissions is a great way to start uh, a local sort of activity. Thank you. I think it's a good, yeah. I would only add that talk to every older person you know about their superannuation and ask them to talk to their superannuation funds about whether they care about you and whether they're invested in the right funds that actually take into account climate change. And I think you have a big impact, you have a big impact through your parents. Yeah, great. Yes, sir. Uh, hello, uh, my name's Gareth, I'm Gareth Ernst. Um, it's a bit of a, I've written it down question. Okay, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, gun control, the bushfires, COVID, global warming, all these movements like monsters all fighting for, for public attention. Um, what does climate change action need to prevent itself becoming yesterday's political news and, and bring itself back into the forefront of public attention? Thank you. Pim? Wow, that's a, a difficult question. I, I, look, I think all of those movements, they're sort of, they're moving society in a particular direction, which is a direction which has got much more respect for the individual. You know, and climate change is about that too. It's about respecting the lives of others and, and unborn generation, young people and so forth. So um, I think the self-reinforcing, uh, obviously sometimes an urgent issue will push another issue out of the news for a bit. And, you know, you just accept that, I think, and, and see it in, as... You know, climate change is not going to go away as an issue, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But... Uh, you know, certain things in, in the news cycle allow it to surface and people can see with greater clarity what's at stake. And this year is really one of those years where the political milestones will drive it. So I'm not really concerned so much about it dropping out of the news. Um, I just think we've got to keep on building the pressure. It's a steady drumbeat, really, that we, we try to um, push forward with the Climate Council particularly. Ben, do you want to add anything? Oh, no, look, I would, I would say, you know, at, at the end of the day, all of us as human beings, we want to do the right thing. And, and, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, all of these movements are about ultimately, you know, people bringing their head and their heart together. And I think to me, we've got to continue to appeal to both. There's, there's that sort of rational thinking side of it, but there's also the emotional side of it. And I think that's important that in any conversation, uh, we do continue to talk about how this ultimately is going to have an impact on, on people because we do want to have a society where we do care for both our people and our planet. And if we can achieve conversations where we can appeal to both sides, we're human beings, so we can appeal to both sides, our head and our heart, I think uh, would be a great way to achieve outcomes. And, and worth thinking about the fact that at the end of the, the Black Summer, we then had a period of some of the most extreme 
uh, weather in, in terms of storms and floods. And it was only COVID that actually took our attention away. But those, that cyclical nature of what now is built into the climate system, as Tim has explained, it'll be back again and again. And um, there's a constant reminder. And I think we were ready to act at that time. I think that the public was ready to go hard on this topic, very, you know, very much so. And COVID mm. changed mm. everything, mm. but for this period. So the, the climate system is going to keep reminding us why it's not going to go away. But Thank you. Wonderful Thank question. Thank you. Thank you. I think we'll take one last question, and then I'll hand back to Kim. Hello. Um, my name's Greer Banya. I just have a question around leadership, and I thank you, Tim, for talking about it. I have two young children, 10 and 13. What I'd really like to know is how do we better support our young people to be those leaders beyond battling that climate change is an issue, because they do battle that every day. Thank you. Yeah, well, gee. I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be very, very happy. It's hard. Um, I think that what we can do is really equip them with the tools. You know, we can suggest or encourage them to link up with a group like AYCC, a really powerful group where people work together to do good things. Or maybe uh, take a leadership position in the school, you know. Um, it, it's going to be built bit by bit. And sometimes I worry we're putting a lot of pressure on the shoulders of our young people. But I think equipping them, linking them up, you know, equipping them with information, linking them up is all going to be helpful. Yeah, I'd probably add to that, you know, we, we hear of terms like scientific literacy, and I think, of course, that's an important part of it. But again, to be able to have young people who can, you know, imagine and shape that future that they would like to see means that you've got to, yes, equip them with tools. Um, they've got to be able to understand um, the science, technology, and, and we hear about all the sort of fundamental sciences and, and engineering sort of solutions. So I think we want to be able to start to talk about those solutions and for young people to start to build a certain sense of hope and optimism, um, building on really great examples that uh, I'm sure that are around would be a fabulous thing to do. Thank you. Wonderful question for us to end on. Um, can you thank our panellists, Tim and Vina? And uh, please also thank the fantastic Sam Austin. Pleasure. Stay there for a minute. Um, I think we've been very privileged tonight to hear from Tim Flannery delivering the inaugural Talbot oration and also from Veena. Thank you for all the work you've done over many years and Sam too. I'm really interested in this concept of leadership in climate change that Tim raised because actually the point made that it, the leadership is with all of you. It's with individuals who can make decisions about their lives and change things. And uh, all of us need to lead now. Everybody in this room tonight needs to lead and to take a stand and to do what you can do. And it's really that simple. Just do something. And I know many people in this room do already. But for those who don't, maybe make a decision just to take some action. Here at the museum, we're trying to inspire young people. We This year, we'll host a million people into this institution and a lot of lovely young school children with bright faces and bright eyes who get that spark when they come in and discover something that the museum can inspire in them. So we're going to be committed to continuing to do that and to raise awareness of these issues with those young people, just as my colleague Denise Orr at the Royal Botanic Garden is doing as well. You know, the Royal Botanic Garden is the oldest science institution in Australia, it just marked 200 years. We're the second oldest, 
will we'll be 200 years old in 2027. So, Denise, thank you for all you do over there too. It's just fantastic. So, look, Tim, just wonderful to have you as part of the Australian Museum again and thank you for your book. And I know Tim um, has the books on sale down at the shop, so please do go there. You can go up now to level four if you like. Uh, you can buy a drink up on level four. You can buy some snacks, meet some new friends. So please feel free to go up to our rooftop cafe, number one William Street, it's called. It's a fantastic place for lunch. That's another plug for the museum. <laughs> um, there is a pianist up there, I think, performing as well. So there's entertainment. So we're open now on Thursday nights through to the end of June. It's a great date night place. Um, I see people holding hands. On, they've been swiping left and right. Um, I'm sure all of you have. So come back here often. But come back to experience what the museum has to offer. Exhibitions like Unsettled, Groundbreaking, Spark, but all of our permanent exhibitions. We've got some great things coming up in the future too. So please support us. We do need the public's support. We're free, as you will see. Please Tell the state government you want to keep us free. Okay. Um, but if in the meantime you'll see some little tap machines where you can tap for our foundation as well and make a donation, it's very easy when you tap and go. Uh, you'll hardly <laughs> notice it. So just, just think about your super account. You're investing in the future this way. <laughs> so, look, thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you, the wonderful Frank Talbot, for everything you've done for not just the museum but for our society long into the future. And boy, do we need to learn some lessons from our elders in this way. And Frank, you're the exemplar for us there. Thank you so much. So enjoy the evening, travel home safely, and please go up to level four and enjoy yourselves. This has been an Australian Museum podcast. 